0: Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left brain robots, right brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Mike Philbrick, Adam Butler, Rodrigo Gordillo are principals of Resolve Asset Management Global. Due to industry regulations, no funds managed or sub by the host will be discussed in this podcast. All opinions expressed by the host are solely their own opinion and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com.
1: This podcast is brought to you by the Resolve Long Horizon Investing Masterclass, a 10-part Evergreen podcast series where Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global explore an advanced investment framework specifically designed to steward quasi-permanent capital with humility and balance. From the science of decision-making to all-weather portfolio construction to the value of diversified alpha-and-tail protection, this series provides a comprehensive capital management roadmap to improve outcomes for wealthy individuals, advisors, family offices, and institutions managing less than $10 billion. To listen to the series or read the transcripts on demand, please visit investresolve.com forward slash masterclass. Alternatively, you can find it on your favorite podcast player by searching for resolve masterclass.
0: Everybody, welcome. Welcome once again to the Resolve Gestalt University podcast. Today, we have a very special guest, David Tripolo from Mercer. I met David a couple of weeks ago at, um, at an event in Chicago where you were kind enough to lead a panel of CTAs talking about all aspects of CTAs, whether it's global macro, diversified trend, regular trend. We're going to get into all of that. But uh, before we begin, just a quick background on Dave's current role. He's a senior investment research specialist at Mercer. and What that means is that he does complete investment due diligence on hedge funds with a focus on quantitative managers. And he also assists in business development as a leading subject matter expert. He's written a very interesting paper that we're gonna touch upon today. And with that, welcome, Dave, how are you doing today? Sorry to interrupt, but um, I did wanna take a quick second to remind listeners that while we do absolutely love providing our audience with world-class guests and weekly investment insights, we wanted to remind you that we actually do our best work outside of this podcast. And we try to do this by providing cutting edge, globally diversified and systematic investment strategies that are designed to be broadly non-correlated to traditional equity and bond portfolios. So we actually manage private and public funds, as well as we spoke separately managed accounts for investors that seek the potential to smooth out portfolio returns in the long run. So if you do want to see that theory that we've been talking about put into practice, please do go ahead and check us out at investorsolve.com. Now back to the podcast.
2: Good. Thanks again, Rod, for uh, inviting me to be on the podcast. And it was yeah, great meeting you a few weeks ago at the at RCM's event. And I was happy to attend that, and happy to be here today, especially on a beautiful day in Chicago. Beautiful day in Chicago. My God. I know October first, and we're in the 80s. That's like, pretty good. It makes no sense right now. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. I'm originally from Toronto, so I know how it is to to treasure those days of the, the beginning of fall. Absolutely. But when we were in Chicago, that was was your first time chairing a panel like that.
2: That was my first time speaking at all in any industry career events for, or at least as someone in investments on this side. So I did do some stuff in my previous life, but yeah, from in terms of from the investment side, yeah, that was my first time. And we were able to catch up after the
0: event and really get to know each other a bit more. We have obviously similar interests given the area of focus that you are in. And really our goal I, I think a common goal at the time we realized was to, to prophesize the value of a diversified solution like futures, systematic macro and all that. We, we did really hit it off, but I'm really interested to start with how you got into the business or how you got interested in anything that has to do with um, P&L and making money. Why don't we go from the beginning? What did you study and, and what did you do in your early 20s?
2: Yeah, early twenties. I could even take investing really to my teens. It was sort of, my mom was always one to be more frugal and more focused on investments, capital markets, despite her just being a teacher, and just taught me the ropes of just the power of compounding. Young age, read quite a few books on that, just buy and hold principles, Warren Buffett, among all the others. Most people on here probably are aware of, and that's what like opened up the door. I've always been very entrepreneurial, where I tried to find interesting paths. And at a young age, it was poker. Poker was my first start and foray into learning about different types of expected value and types of outcome that can go well. In high school, it was just a lot of cash games and finding friends that were interested in it, which were a loss. Chris Moneymaker pretty much just won the World Series of Poker back then between my sophomore and junior year. And let's say my junior and senior year was a lot of games. And I'm a very competitive person with sports and anything I do so of course I have to read every book on the subject try to get it read because we have a similar uh, beginning yeah. it was
0: Moneymaker at the time. first one yeah I, yeah I think I came back from a long trip to South America and and somebody invited me to a to a tournament I'd never played poker in my life I think my mom taught me some poker like five card stud back in the day but I Got in there and I won. It was a, like 50 people, three floors in, in a house in, in downtown Toronto, all buddies. And I won and I thought, man, I got this lick. This is so easy. It's, and I made a lot of money that day that led me down the path of, of poker, the experience of poker and read a bunch of books. But what was the Do you remember the first couple of books you read?
2: I think the first one was like Phil Home's book. I can't remember oh. the specific name of it but that was definitely just him and the character and like, oh, he maybe he's a great player. Maybe he's not, but just with his personality, I think that was one. There was one that Daniel Negreanu also had. And then the theory of poker with David Sklansky, that's going to the roots of it, but you can't jump into that book first. That's just too intense for your first book to say the least, but then the more mathematical side of it. So definitely focus there and I was mostly a cash game player, but a little bit on the tournament side of things. And uh, while I played like online with friends, the real money was online. So yeah. back in that day, it was all party poker uh, until they were forced to shut down because of the Unlawful Internet Gambling Act, which wasn't anything wrong. We were doing it was just for how the banks handled it yeah. and then moved over to Poker Stars. after that and played on there. Pretty much until that was forced to close on April 15th, 2011. <laughs> yeah, I had a similar
0: experience with all that. In Canada, it was a similar outcome. I played a lot of night games as well in Toronto, which was an interesting scene. All cash games. I found tournament play was a little bit more volatile than cash game. You can count on your edge showing up more consistently if you played enough tables and long enough cash games.
2: Did you have a similar outcome like why did you choose cash over tournament for that exact reason i'm not someone that likes variance i like consistent cash flow and i played nine tables at a time and grinded from very small stakes poker with 100 bucks and turned that into a good amount of money over the years and never looked back playing like three six five ten no limit six max on those stakes eventually and stayed consistent with that till basically the end but then it was uh An interesting time of like how to do it once party poker was gone and like how long could this type of like edge exist and in terms of poker with less people playing on more efficiency in the market. One of my buddies even owned uh, Lego poker when I was debating back and forth if I was going to be a part of that, like how much of my own information edge do I want to put on content on that site versus the amount of money you would pay me for it. I always went back and forth on it and I was like, nah, I'm not willing to do it. But it was just so much information you could learn, probably starting from card runners. And I would say that started in 2000, maybe 2007 or so. I think that's one of the first big years where you can tell the improvement of players was drastically different. And you can start to see your hourly rate to decline slightly if you weren't really keeping up on your game, because everything in the end was all about the math. And when you're playing online like that, and there was two main um, like software programs called uh, a tracker and hold a Man- manager, That's right. where you like would do serious analysis and to start doing like SQL data sources on players with thousands of hands and start to find small tendencies and how you extract alpha. In you that would case. find yeah. the players
0: that had high alpha and avoid them like the plague, right? And that you had a history of those guys, although they would change their names once in a while too. To hide the the fish from going to their table. So it was a a very powerful tool. Yes. And that was absolute requirement. Yeah, you couldn't, at that stage, you couldn't play poker successfully if you didn't, if you weren't analyzing what you were doing, improving your game, reacting to the reactions. As the poker evolved, your game had to evolve. And it did become you you just you saw like live how a clear arbitrage opportunity in the beginning of Mm -hmm. this space. It was so easy to make money in the beginning. Well, after reading a f- couple of books, I think I did win that tournament. Then I lost aggressively for the following four months until I picked up the books and started learning how to actually play poker. But uh, but you did see it was significantly easier. It was almost free money in the beginning, whereas at the end you were you were grinding it out. And and yeah, it, you needed to find something new. I certainly did. So why was it just the difficulty in getting games that got you out of poker, or was it something else?
2: For me, it was. uh, I was also going to Indiana Indiana University, Kellogg School of Business, finance major. I knew that was the end route for me. And this was just during that time where it was like finding a balance between trying to study and still maintain like over 3.5 so I can get into the investment banks and then playing poker 15 to 20 hours a week and still having somewhat of a social life and running tennis clubs. So there was a lot of different things. I was very busy in college. Not, maybe didn't have as much of a traditional experience as much, but it was good. I enjoyed that. And that set me forward, I think, in terms of trying to move forward. And in the end, so I graduated in December, 2008, Mm -hmm. pretty much worst time you could imagine trying to get into sales and trading is that was my goal at a big bank. And I had a lot of friends that just were having, obviously offers rescinded from every iBank, everything else. And it's where, where do I go from here and what do I do? And I decided to go into prop trading. Uh, so there's you know, a lot of large firms in Chicago that are very reputable. So it's not like I put up money or something at, at any of these firms. And that's pretty much where I started. So my resume was pretty much solely poker and an internship I had. At, it was a combination CTA and also a brokerage house at the particular time. But I only f- focused on the CTA side, Adamiel Van Asen actually. Okay. and that's what opened my interest in that side and I ended up just landing more so on futures trading instead of options trading at, at trans market group and why did you choose that over options was Sarah there... I really didn't have a choice in terms of all the offers I had they were all from futures trading firms so I thought that was interesting because there was like three that I had and two smaller firms and then trans market group was very reputable under Ray Kahneman and well known and Pretty much had the highest earning potential, at least from what I understood going into it, where you pretty much work under uh, a senior trader and then it, night shift, which of course, of course no one wants to not, do, but you have to started. start. Come that's on. how you start the industry. Yeah. And that's the only way to do it. And run a book early on. I was running a very large book a week into my job. It's crazy to think about. But again, it's night shift and there's enough people around me to help yeah. get you going there. So... What were you trading on the future side? Because
0: of course, when prop trading, there's a lot of specialists that just focus on a single market. Were you uh, mm-hmm. focused on diversified markets at the time or just one at a time?
2: Well, so it was actually it was more than futures, it was cash basis. So I was trading two, two five, 10, third, and 30-year cash basis was the primary focus at the time. Sometimes you would trade just cash spreads. And so it'd be a combination of futures plus the cash. But at that time, it was all using auto spreaders. So 2009, not as much was automated and there were still forms of inefficiency that would happen in that space, especially before QE round one, which happened a few, like two or three months into my job, which definitely changed things drastically, even from when I started and then how that even shifted things. So how, lo- how long was that? It was it months. Months. Yeah. But so you guys were making money and
0: much like poker, it got harder and harder based on yeah. one change in the market. That's the life of a mm-hmm. product trader, right? And at that point, yeah. it's not like you're coming up with your own ideas. You're probably still learning from the guys at the top and trying to repeat what they've done to
2: make money. Is that fair to say? Yeah. The first few months definitely was just like is someone's assistant. And it was like, they pretty much told me, this is my portfolio I have for the day. And these are the type of ways I would like you to have edge. And then it would be like market making in the cash basis, which was pretty easy to do, I would say, or at least felt like that way to me prior to QE. But then afterwards, the liquidity dried up massively. It was like night shift was tough then because it was not that much happening. And it was very slow markets compared to what was happening before. Bid S spread would typically be about four ticks wide on a cash basis in the 10 and 30 year. And then post QE was maybe half that and maybe an eighth of the liquidity. It was crazy how much that shifted in a week and how many people blew out even right. from that day that traded that space. So what happened from there? Like, how did you guys adapt? I sat literally across from Ray Kahneman and he saw like how I was viewing things and said, you know what, you can go ahead and just run your own book, which was probably six or eight months into my job at that point. And they also had a new hiring class of 15 people. When I started beforehand, it was normally two to four people. So they needed someone to train these new people and start these new desks. And I was definitely the youngest by far to see how that would go. And that transition went well. So I had a kind of an assistant working day shift after six months instead of 18. So that was great in my book and uh, did pretty well with it. And I used a combination of my experience from what i would learned from Bray plus my boss and a little bit even from what I learned from Emil uh, was how to develop actual strategies. So I became a little bit more quantitative with my approach when I started writing my own book. And it was... Looking at a mix of more fundamentals plus technical information, they didn't use nearly as much fundamental in terms of how they're reviewing carry repo and other factors with how you would market make, hold it overnight and understand like what dollar value of profits or potential losses you would have if you're short or long cash basis and how you would view that. And then also, I got more involved with trading flies of different sort and paying more attention to the like kinks in the curve and the entire curve. Versus just looking at it as a cash basis. So I'd be looking at like maybe three, five, seven-year cash and how some abnormality seemed to persist for a day or two because of how the auction cycle is going and other things of that factor. So it's between.
0: So let me double click on that a little bit. How do you go from, so you you were taught a certain type of trade. You systematize a lot of it, is from what I understand. How do you go from an idea generation to starting to systematize something like that. What made you think about the repo market and looking at overnights and fundamentals in a way that your bosses
2: hadn't? I think it was just always trying to learn to improve. Because for me, it was just not always... You can't stay constant with the strategy. You have to know the difference that's happening. Now, when I'm saying systematizing in this case, like I'm not a programmer, I'm not a Python guy by any means or C++. Where for me, the systematization of it was just analyzing more factors and being more specific and diligent with how I'm executing upon that versus some other people with their risk management framework were a little bit more loose than what they should have been. Right. So just trying to really hone that down in a lot of different ways where i um, Despite being a poker player and everything else, I'm pretty risk averse in general. So my swings were definitely a lot less than some people, but my sharp was definitely higher than a lot. And I was fine with not being the biggest earner in the group by far because my, my heart can only take so much of swings. <laughs> yeah, one of my closest um, uh,
0: colleagues was uh, a prop trader, continues to be a prop trader. And what he always talked about was like, The ideas, they're all over the place. Everybody has a lot of great ideas and there's a lot of overlap. And what the difference between a successful prop trader and an unsuccessful one ends up being in how much dollars in your pocket can you actually put in from that same idea? And Mm -hmm. all of that had to do with process and risk management and making sure that the way that you play the game was as tight and robust as you possibly can, rather than just, that's a great idea, everybody can do it. That was the big difference there, the attention to detail. It seems absolutely. It's, it seems it's something yeah. that you were honing in on. All right. So you, how long did you do this for?
2: So I was a trans market group pretty much through the, say, boom and bust of it, so to speak. So during the time I was there, there was a lot of people that were getting hurt through some Euro dollar fly positions and some other things. I would say a large majority of the people at Transmark Group at the time were trading euro dollars in not cash basis. So we were definitely more in the minority. Some were doing okay, and others not as not as much. I was still doing pretty well, but the firm itself was not. So that's when. What uh, years were so these? This would have been in 2011. Now, okay. so I was there for or no ten. So yeah, I think it was fall of 2010. where it just wasn't going well for the firm. And Aardvark Trading actually ended up buying out. And I ironically switched to another firm that was a different subsidiary of uh, Trans Market Group for the next 10 months or so, doing the exact same thing. And I started to realize over time, both firms were just terribly isolating. And it was like I was doing okay. And uh, toward the end, it was still... Like, where do I see my path in future if I can't really learn from really anyone else? I never really got that impression at MM Trading, right? And that's when, and at that same time, Emil Van Essen was killing it. So this would put us in like end of 2011 or middle of 11. And I had a variety of discussions with Emil since I had the internship with him. And he spun out at three years of 30% plus returns. And I was like, and then he was focusing on spread trading commodities but he didn't trade rates. So that was how we kept talking about it a couple of times. You know what, come on board. So that's what led me to the world of CTAs.
0: So you go from doing these very kind of clear prop trades and arbitrage opportunities to a world of CTA, which is, it, it can mean many things and we'll get to that. I think you address some of that in your paper, but what did it
2: mean in that new role for you? What was the big shift and the big difference? <laughs> Ooh, uh, at least in terms of the understanding of the job going into it would just be the fact it'd be a way more collaborative environment where I'm able to learn more than just what my trade is. So I'd be able to learn like, how is he making money 30% annualized returns for three-year stretch tr- spread trading commodities? And it's, it seems like it would fit the bucket of what I'm doing since I was like basis trading, cash basis trading. So it was like, that was seemed like a natural shift of in terms of helping him out and for each other, at least that's what I, I took the initial job as. Right, and and so how'd that go? I bet so went- ended up helping streamline a lots of things there unintentionally. Right. So I was working on back office, middle office, streamlined front office, trying to work with this uh, third party program to streamline some of this with these more than more than one firm that we worked with at the time and just make things a lot more efficient, which we did. So that was like a key goal. And then the head of compliance and our CFO helped me understand what needed to be done there. And I was more the meticulous, detailed, oriented person, where I have no clue from compliance side. I was a prop trader beforehand. And then trying to put that together, what would make sense of how I envision a meal going in the future and what type of things would I want as an investor or also as just being an employee of the firm to help expand that, and yeah, that definitely happened.
0: So you were already managing
2: other people's money at that point. That wasn't all prop money, right? Okay. At Emil, yes. So he had 150 million under management. He was the sole CIO and final decision maker on everything. But I would still definitely have a little bit of say. But he is known to be a stubborn person and likes his ideas. But it was definitely a collaborative environment in terms of coming up with research, designing the research. And then the implementation of it. So I, I was became the trader that would handle the majority of the orders between me and a meal Like travel uh, for you know a lot of a lot of clients at that time. So then I would the hands on guy that like, would handle the day to day of that.
0: So you got to not only see how the sausage was made, but actually build the sausage maker.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm sure that's it, you
0: up yeah. for the, your future role. So you, how long were you there for, and then what was your next leap forward?
2: Yeah, so I was at Emile for eight years, so I saw all the ups and downs of going from 150 million under management to half a billion and back down to 150 million. So I wow. saw the whole gambit of just the cyclicality of the CTA space, which is major, especially in the 2010s, which I tried addressed in the paper that we'll talk about later. And it was just a tough time for a lot of CTAs for a variety of reasons. And toward the end, it's just, I felt the need to move on for a variety of different reasons. And it was like, where do I want to go now? And it's, I prop traded, I did the poker thing. And, and then it's, I was trying to see, it's like, how can I go to something a little bit more of a stable role where I'm still involved in this space and see more of it than what I currently see? So that was a big thing for me is like, how can I utilize this information? And I worked with a few different people from the investment due diligence side while all these people were onboarding. And that sounded always interesting to me from early on. So that's where I studied for the CHI. Did that at some point, maybe four or five years into working for Emil, And he always joked I would end up going on that side. There well, you are. And it happened, but yeah.
0: <laughs> I thought the reason I left poker is because when I, I just never felt completely detached from the game. Right? When you go on vacation, yeah. You're not making money, right? You were. Yes. You had. It was. You were a per hour worker. If you weren't working, you weren't making Absolutely. money, and you should. That's okay. You're making enough money in the meantime. You should be able to allow yourself to do that. But I always felt that that pull of I can't take time off. I just have to continue to show up to work. And I think I would imagine you from poker to prop trading. That's the same pull. Where you're always on. You're always feeling that. Mm-hmm. And there's an allure. certainly. For my wife at the time, she's like, do you want to do this in a way where you can actually take a vacation, take some time off and still make some money? And the idea of managing other people's money in a systematic way, using my poker skills to do that was a relief, right? You, you're, you show up to work, you work hard, you're getting paid on the back end. It's much more stable. You're at risk averse guy. I imagine that played a role in the decision at this point.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, because it was very different. Because just like you said, everything, if you're not at the poker table or studying the game, then it just there's, you're not making money. And I'm someone where I, I want to have something complete, but you never actually feel like you're completely done with anything, because you could just always play more. And you could always focus on so much more edge in the markets. And as a even in later end, I ran my own fund at a meal as well. And I need sleep like, <laughs> and it's hard. So sometimes major market events, I remember the day Trump won the election, it's, I don't think I slept for a long time. So <laughs> it's like, how do you function and go about this? And it's, you know what, I don't feel comfortable with this type of environment. And it's, I, yeah, I wanted more, the feeling of uh, being able to finish a job and then also the stability of it definitely was both of those points. That's okay. So this is when you hit Mercer. Mm -hmm.
0: And in your role here, you bring all this, this is pretty solid background for somebody at Mercer. I uh, I imagine there aren't many of you in there, but your role is very focused on the global macro and CTA space. Is that right?
2: Yes. I would say when I first came on board, it was probably like 80 to 90% of my coverage at the time, which is anything that's, we refer to it like the year that I came on board in 2019 as managed futures and then switched over to calling it systematic macro, which included three tiers at the time, which is pure trend, diversified trend and uh, multi Right. And then later on, I would say there's a little bit less of systematic macro just to sadly lack of demand in the space and more into the we refer to it as like the other category, which we built out a relative value sub universe as well, which includes or go ahead. Yeah. Okay. To, yeah.
0: So this is so you basically because <clears throat> it's true. I think one of the biggest issues in the space is that it, it literally has ten names, right? It's a CTA, <laughs> it's managed futures, is diversified trend, global macro, systematic global macro. So your three categories, as far as I understand, pure trend allocation, diversified trend, and multi strategy. Can you get a little deeper into what each one of those categories mean to you guys at Mercer?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we actually ended up switching that recently I'd say about nine, maybe six to nine months ago because of a couple of reasons. So now it's just two categories instead of three where we're trend oriented strategies, which are 50% or more allocated to trend strategies. And then the other one is just still multi-strat, which is less than 50% trend. The reason for this switch was because we're trying to focus on the specific return profile which is just either higher convexity and more than likely lower sharp, but also lower fees, versus multi-strat, which is full gambit of absolute return and typically less convexity. So those are the two categories. And we blended, or we combined the two of pure trend and diversified trend, because there's been so much evolution in this space where it's hard to tell exactly what is pure trend and diversified trend, because before we had the marker being at 90% or more, being a pure trend into which was 90% or more trend in pure trend. And there's a lot of them where it's is this defined as trend? If it's using fundamental information, is that still defined as trend? And we were, we have a rating system, and that rating system would change potentially if you're looking at one category versus the other. So by combining the two, it, it, I feel where we feel it makes it more simplified for consultants, for researchers. And it also future-proofs the ongoing uh, R&D that all of these firms are going through in terms of how they're expanding and analyzing uh, trends or other strategies as well.
0: Now, was this based on their own articulation of what they did internally? Or were you able to extrapolate this directly
2: from the data? Oh, you could definitely talk from the data. Yeah, so it was noticeable that the returns, the The return profile and the convexity level is very similar for a pure trend and diversified trend in the later years. So we're looking at 2019 to 2022-ish, and we didn't see too much of a difference between those two universes. So we could tell that from a quantitative aspect and then also just from what they were saying their R&D was. There was a few firms that specifically were saying that this is still trying to be trend, but we're just looking at it in a different way. And that's where it was getting a little murky. And those that were trying to be trend, but still in a different way,
0: were those systems of fundamental based trend systems, did they still offer the same type of convexity? Were they still thinking that was going to happen or did it create that diversity that kind of dampens that convexity?
2: Uh, some were able to do it pretty efficiently where it was very similar. Others are somewhat efficiently. But sometimes their goal was to only be somewhat, have maybe like a 0.5 correlation from one to the other. Because again, if it's nearly a correlation of one, then you're not really adding value at that point. So you, even though you are having diversifying strategies, even if, if it's that highly correlated, what's the point of adding it? So it's by going with strategies that would have a 0.5, 0.7 correlation it's still adding value to their trend uh, component and still able to have that same level of con- convexity.
0: Okay, so, so let's get into, because I think there was when I got into the business, I used uh, Managed Futures even before I was running my own shop. Um, I used other managers in the Managed Futures space back in the mid-2000s, and they were all trend. There's been obviously a big evolution in the last couple decades What has been the evolution and why do you think that happened?
2: I think the evolution happened because of the cyclicality of the space on some level. There are some periods of time where trend has done very well and other times where it has not. So that's definitely one reason why firms felt the need to expand into other categories. And even when I worked for Emile that was a larger differentiator at the time, was spread trading commodities was not as common. And he was known as a diversifier within the managed futures space. So that was like how it was looked at that time, which is still even shifted now to an even way more complex version of where we see systematic macro. So it was a survival mechanism for a lot of people absolutely. Growing. Yeah, yeah.
0: What are the other sleeves that you see? Are, are you able to disaggregate different styles? What makes the other fifty percent of the PNL for the macro management?
2: Yeah, I would say there's a lot more on the quant equity side. So you have your value carry models, but it's also like how they're trying to analyze that. So there's so many different ways and how all of our managers that are investable by Mercer or deemed investable by Mercer can view it. And some of it's not even just about the idea generation side, but the portfolio construction of how you're putting it all together. But specifically on the idea generation of models, Outside of that, we are seeing more on short-term. Short-term has definitely been a larger focus for quite a few managers that we cover. We're finding different uh, sources of edge through the microstructure. has probably been more prominent in the past, I'd say, five years. And I feel like even if you look at all the firms that we cover, the average holding period is slightly declined across the board to cater to this while still being able to provide the same same type of risk profile they're looking at beforehand, but just new sources of, of edge that can be done in that space. Whether that's done on a technical basis, which I feel like you don't see as much of that now, but there's way more of a focus on the fundamental side because there's just so many data sources. And that's, I would say, becoming a more prominent feature across CTAs, where in the past, everything was price-based if you go back probably 10, 20 years for sure, definitely 20 years. And more recently, the number of sources of fundamental information, whether that's in commodities and just grains reports and any other type of typical report to the more esoteric ones where you will have even your type of could range from just trying to see like a parking lot, like a map of a parking lot for all the targets and how they can even be used for one or another kind of on that side. Yeah, but yeah.
0: Okay. It's interesting because I, w- I would imagine Mercer will want to understand, categorize, and provide a sort of repeatable character of the strategies that they offer their investors. And so when we think about trend, I think historically one can intuit, I think the reason that it was a popular approach was because it was something that has recently gone up. is likely to continue to go up for a short period of time, something that's gone down, continue to go out and down for a short period of time. And if those trends are sustained, then we make money, right? So bonds down, equities down, prolonged, You're, you can count on trend being there. Uh, at least that's the intuition. In the paper, you do mention that systematic global macro has similar characteristics, right? It has the ability, it, it seems to historically have been there during periods of acute equity market stress. How do you think about the expectation of similar characteristics going forward outside of trend? Uh, and why do we think that they're still like the systematic macro is still a good hedge against um, poor periods in the markets?
2: I think we've seen like definitely a regime shift in general of where before and all of the 2010s, just uh, quantitative easing. It was a big factor of like how returns were or the lack of returns in CTAs, which has been which is vastly different now with the monetary policy we have, plus the like. De-globalization, different monetary policies across the board globally, and there, which leads to a more prominent set of returns on a go-forward basis across all asset classes. beforehand, if you look at 2010s, most returns would just be stemming from trend following, from trend followers being just from rates and then long equities if they did not have a cap on their equity exposure. Right. But now it's very different, where you're able to see the whole gambit. Between more and FX, we've seen positive returns for a variety of funds. Commodities have been have quite a few strong trends given the issues in Ukraine plus supply demand imbalances in general and just geopolitical tensions overall. You can definitely tell in energies and acts markets just that there's quite a bit of more opportunities now than what there was in the past with the, the macro environment. Yeah, and I think a lot of that <clears throat> has to do with the fact that
0: there, there were no clear dispersions. If you measure dispersion in the early 2000s, it was wide, right? Like they were, the markets really took a lot of control back then in the 2000 to 2003 period of the tech crisis. We saw it in the Brazil, like the kind of the brick Emergence in the 2003 to 2007 period. There was a lot of dispersion between global equity markets, especially emerging markets and everything else. Commodities were all over the place. It was a nice playground to be in on the long, short futures space. And then what happened in, after 2010, basically, is <clears throat> the only game in town was the NASDAQ, really. The S&P did well, but because of the NASDAQ. And, you, and people often conflate when you say, I thought you were a trend follower. Yes, that's a single market that did well. If you look at global equities during that decade, they actually didn't have as, those trends were interrupted often. And it was a muted return structure for global equities. It was really tough period, flat sideways markets for commodities and, and dispersion was really quite low during the last decade. All of that, of course, has changed since Ukraine, right? Since quantitative easing, after 2020, and then everything that's come with that with inflation, right? When the genie has come out of the bottle and the Fed can't put it back in, you're going to see opportunity sets for this type of of investment. But I I do want to double click one more time. And and if you don't know the answer to this, that's cool. There's 50% of these systematic global macro managers that are trend-based and the other 50% that is other. Do you expect that other to provide convexity in a downward market? Is there an expectation of
2: that? No, we don't have an expectation of that, actually. We're fine with having some funds that don't have positive convexity within this space and just view it totally as a absolute return profile. That is fine with us. And we will definitely note that in our reports saying that, hey, this is the type of profile you'll have. You might have issues for X, Y and Z reasons. So it's not a necessity to be. To have that type of profile, the things that we're looking for in particular is just really sources of alpha. If we believe that a particular fund has more source of alpha than another, then it can be A-rated and investable by our clients and our delegated team. So it can definitely
0: range. And so the non-trend side is also style premia, style funds? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, that's clearly not necessarily has a character of having high convexity at any given time. As we saw in 2020. So in September 2022, you published a paper with your co-author, remind me of his name again? Uh, John Jackson. John Jackson. The paper is called Systematic Macro Hedge Funds Trending into the New Regime. And you started by just discussing a little bit of the macro environment that we were in 2022 and why this is a particularly good time to be focusing on this space. What is the backdrop on the macro side that led you to want to inform your colleagues of this opportunity? Sorry to interrupt, but I did want to take a quick second to remind our listeners that, you know, the team works really hard on these podcasts. We spent a lot of hours trying to get the right guests and we do a lot of prep work to make sure that we're asking the right questions. So if you do have a second, just do hit that subscribe button, hit that like button and share with friends if you find what we're doing useful. Thanks again. Now back to the podcast.
2: I think, yeah, there there was just such a big difference between how we view the market during quantitative easing versus post that, and then also the inflationary environment. And we, in general, just believe that macro picture is more likely to have trends across the board that are more long-lasting, just just given the uh, different monetary policy we expect to see globally. Mm -hmm. And so that sets sets
0: allocators up to to be in a lot of pain if you're not willing to do something different. I think one of the things that a lot of practitioners have realized that maybe hadn't studied history before is that indeed equities and bonds can correlate and they can go down together. But of course, I think there was a belief that the idea of rates going to 5% was completely just, it was just un, uh, unacceptable, right? We weren't going to be able to deal with the debt burden and so on. So it, we were always going to have a cap at 2%. Clearly, that has changed since early 2020, and now we're seeing this inflationary thrust come upon us and, and some bear markets and equities and bonds going down together. Now, when you think about diversifiers in and, and, and the Mercer space, aside from global macro and CTAs and managed futures, all the names, do you, what other asset classes are being allocated to, to deal with this environment? And what's the proportion between those traditional asset classes and the CTA space that you've seen?
2: So, yeah, within the hedge fund space, outside of systematic macro, it's more typically volatility-oriented strategies that can provide, like, levels of high convexity in a short time period to deal with the crisis, such as, like, COVID that happens out of the blue. Yes, so it's definitely more tail protection which is more options-based with a couple of funds that we recommend. And that's like our main focus for dealing with short-term, very sharp dislocations in comparison to more long sustained trends where uh, it would be more beneficial to have a a program like Managed Futures that will do well during times when 60-40 portfolio might not be performing well, which would like hedge out the difference between the two, between the tail protection. Because tail protection typically you'll be losing X percentage on a monthly basis. And if you don't have that, but at the same time, if you have managed futures with the slow sustained trends, that can at least recover that and potentially make more. So we will lump both of those two together to be part of, I guess we would refer to them as our like risk mitigation solutions within our hedge fund portfolio as a whole. So that's on the hedge fund side.
0: Do you find a lot of Mercer um, consultants and clients Allocating to commodities and gold just to, to mitigate some of this inflation that we're seeing.
2: We see a lot more actually on the multi-asset side, so that was more of a focus. But we did actually have some requests for gold as well. Like I was, I, I was a little shocked on that one. But I would say eighty to ninety percent was leaning more toward the multi-asset over gold, and nothing for the other.
0: And when you see the uh, interest in gold and the options for traditional portfolios to diversify. Um, What do you think, what do you think is a more powerful tool here between for inflation protection and bear market protection? Is it gold and commodities over systematic macro? Like how would you, if you had carte blanche, how would you start leaning traditional 6040 portfolios towards a safer
2: allocation? I think it's overall long-term you're going to get a lot more out of systematic macro than you will out of the others just by looking at either commodities. Or, or gold, you have a lot of issues with just investing directly with commodities mm-hmm. in terms of being in contango markets versus backwardation and how you're actually accumulating returns, which if you look at like BCom or some of the other indices over time, even in a, an environment where there is strong inflation, you're losing, you might be losing too much money from just the role in general, Yeah, the calendar role. Yeah, it's, it is
0: a, when, when I looked at the data It has a positive, a diversified commodity basket has a positive expectancy mainly due to the rebalancing premium, but it does come in bunches, right? You get 20% of the time, you get all the benefits and then the other 80% of the time you have a negative carry. So it's a tough thing to hold emotionally. Whereas from your paper, you show the benefits of kind of a diversified approach, positive, sharp ratio, positive carry most years. It seems to be a robust approach for these types of markets. And so you make a good case for systematic global macro for the average allocator. And I always, I've been using this quote for 15 years because you presented evidence that is abundantly clear. It is not a new and novel strategy. Like I think a lot of the tail protection strategies that have come come about. It is an old approach, right? It's been around since the 80s. And the quote, I don't even know who to give the quote to. I I think it's Churchill, but it's probably not. And it's that men occasionally stumble over the truth, but most of them pick themselves up in a hurry as if nothing ever happened. So you write this paper, you present the evidence. How many people picked up that piece of truth and ran with it? Did you get a a lot of pickup?
2: No, sadly, we actually did not. It was one of those things where I expected more client interest just to see in the environment. And it's not even just the environment, but just the return. So that wasn't even intentional that 2021 and 22 were banner years for systematic macro. It was more so the thought of we just believe that this time makes sense and it's not just trying to cherry pick more recent returns. The fact that we had both the returns and the continued environment we're in I really would have expected we saw more client interest, but it was pretty minimal. So why do you think that is,
0: as you have these conversations? What has come out in your understanding of why they don't do it?
2: I think there's some of it where there's the lack of understanding of the full of outside of trend following. So trend following, there can be most people understand that space has been around for over 40 years. But if you when you go into the full balance of what these other systematic macro programs are, People are just not really aware or just not comfortable with it. I've heard clients say it's the magic black box. And it's now there's so much more you can dig under the hood and to try to get there. And some people just aren't willing to do it. But that's what what my job at Mercer is to dig under that hood and understand where those alpha sources are and to talk with the PMs to understand each and every model and what they do and how they operate and how their edge exists across the board.
0: I think it probably was September 2022. <clears throat> We'd seen a bit of a peak in that space already in May. I think a lot of it might have had to do with the fact that it's been in a bit of a drawdown. SVB didn't help, right? No, that wasn't yeah. big. We're starting to see it pick up. Certainly, our strategies are positive for the year. We are starting to see things break down in the 60 40 once again. Are you starting to see a bit more chatter as things get better for that space or not yet?
2: I, I, Maybe it's early. I, a little bit, but I feel like it's not from U.S. investors. It's actually all from European investors. For whatever reason why, I've never really understood why in Europe there tends to be a larger focus on systematic strategies versus the states. But it's just I feel like always been the case even going back 10 years. But that's definitely where we're seeing more from that side than that, our U.S. side. From the U.S. side.
0: If you examine the liquid alternative, or not the liquid alternative, just the l- regular alternative sleeve, what is that dominated by these days? Oh, uh, overall, it's still oh from wait, liquid or not? No, not, liquid? not non-liquid. I'm um, uh, just um, dealing with pension plans. Like what the whatever space they of, give to alternatives, what is in there?
2: Private equity, private credit were some of the biggest searches, and actually infrastructure this past quarter as well was one of our. Big three in terms of the amount of searches we saw, were, those were the big three.
0: I've always thought that one of the major reasons why larger organizations don't even look at this space is because it is capacity constrained, right? Like each manager has a limit. They have their own limits in terms of trying to achieve um, positive alpha, their CFTC limits. Uh, do you think a lot of it has to do with the fact that they simply can't allocate in size? So why bother? I
2: think they can now, there's enough where you can move the needle for an overall portfolio. I'd say most of the managers we cover have, as long as you're not looking at the alt-trend space, you have a capacity of 3 to $10 billion, you get $50, 100 million allocation for some of these pension funds and endowments still is a meaningful amount in terms of what their risk mitigation solutions portion of their portfolio or where it makes sense. And it's all liquid market. Futures markets are very liquid across the board and more firms are even expanding upon the number of markets to find other sources of liquidity and value as well in the past few years.
0: Yeah, for those that can, not every, certain, certainly certain sovereign wealth funds might not be able to, right? But Yeah, on some level. But. If you're small enough, Everybody's trying to follow the kind of endowment, the Yale Endowment Foundation's model, right? And it's a very large allocation or allocator that that may not have that, that may not have the mandate flexibility and the portfolio agility to do all the things that smaller pension plans can. And when you do examine just like you wrote in your paper, when you examine the space and you look at your options, I always like to equate it to the vast majority of assets out there are dealing with a two-piston motor that for the last 40 years has had two pistons move in opposite direction from each other. And in fact, one of the pistons is super thick and the other one's really thin. The Bond piston is really thin. So it's really the equity piston that's moving that car forward Mm -hmm. a little clunky. You can look at Ray Dalio and what he's done to equate those weights and make it a, a, a smoother ride. But ultimately, in the last couple of years, both of those pistons have gone down together. And when you look in the landscape as to what you can do to have a third piston to make that ride smoother. It's just there. It's not even I of course I'm biased, but I got here by just observing the empirical data. It's just so simple to to add that third component, a diversified component of CTAs and Global Macro, to have that third piston to smooth out the ride. And and it's just baffling to me that those that have the mandate flexibility and portfolio agility can't seem to see through that. So hopefully your paper And these types of conversations will allow people to see the light, take the red pill. Maybe I think we need a couple of more of these uh, cycles for people to really wake up. But, you know, what are are you doing right now to get the word out more in your role? Uh, you, You wrote the paper. What are you doing on the day to prophesy?
2: for my specific role, it's still just trying to find the best managers. So it's not as much of trying to to market the space as much, but just given my background in the space, I I try to make sure people are aware of their options. So while my role isn't much on the marketing side, just by being on here and then also moderating the panel, we're some of the stuff trying just to bring more not necessarily interest, bring more knowledge to the space of what how systematic macro can add value to a 60-40 portfolio and then also add value just in terms of a diversified hedge fund portfolio is in terms of how we view it internally across while including all the other strategy types you would expect to see. And even within hedge fund strategies, that systematic macro tends to not be correlated to anything within that bucket More, more often than not if you extract out the HFRI macro but for other categories, it's still very minimal correlation. So just trying to, between the paper and then some events like this, it's just trying to make sure that our OCIO team is aware, which they are, they've been in this industry a long time, but then also trying to put more word out there to our consultants as well, You know, across for all hedge fund strategies.
0: And the, the last thing I want to cover <clears throat> is the unique characteristic that the managed future space has with regards to capital efficiency, right? We've, called it return stacking in this channel in the past. If you want to learn more about that, you can go to returnstacked.com. We've written a ton on it, but there is, I think there's been, if you look at the last decade, there's been an aversion to a flat decade for a lot of trend managers, right? But managed futures allow because of their capital efficiency, allow us to really stack that that diversifier on top of a traditional allocation. So if a pension plan wants to keep their 60-40 and they have tracking error bias that they don't want to move away from, there is the possibility of hiring a bunch of CTA managers for them to stack the strategies on top. When you're dealing with these European investors, is there interest in that separately managed account? in that capital efficiency, or are they giving you a full allocation, or are they making room in their portfolio for it?
2: I mean, we've s- definitely seen both, but which is a little odd to me. I would think most would want to have the SMA from the capital efficiency standpoint and just the type of returns you can get on your cash right now with where rates are at. So it's an environment I would expect to see more on SMAs going forward. But in the past, I would say it it's not too much of a difference from one to the other, but there's a mix of delegated assets as well. So how that works and structured at Mercer makes that less possible. It depends on the type of relationship they have with Mercer. And if you're in delegated portfolios versus other ones that are just individually managed by our OCIO team, which, which is separate.
0: So can you just double click on that? What's a delegated portfolio?
2: Mercer has a range of portfolios that we view as our, ideal portfolio of sorts that are done with specific volatility targets in mind. So it's we have one where it's trying to have equity like equity like returns with about half the volatility of it, other ones that are more risk reducing portfolios with certain different return and volatility targets. And then outside of that then it's just whatever an individual client is looking for and then we help manage those portfolios. Oh, okay, I see.
0: All right, so I guess what I want to leave it on is there's a lot of CTA managers here probably going to be listening to this podcast and that also want to get known and be followed by consultants and be in their favors. What is it that, what type of advice would you give a kind of emerging or mid-sized uh, managed futures manager, or macro manager in dealing with Mercer and getting their attention? How do you
2: guys handle that? Yeah, the small guys—it's tough. Systematic macro and trying to get in the space is hard from a infrastructure setup plus cost structure data. It's very data intensive that we would expect to see a well-rounded portfolio. So, from a startup, you would need a lot of money or put a lot of money into it to get off the ground and running. I would say for the mid-sized ones is just attempting to be more institutional and then also trying to just focus on R and D. Are you being unique with your alpha sources? For us at this point, we're not really looking as much into trend, just the more typical trend following funds. They've been around for forever. We cover quite a few. It's trying to be something different that you don't see in the space. So how you're looking at like fundamental information, how you're looking at the broad depth of the universe in a unique way is something that will set yourself apart versus trying to be something more common. Right. Perfect.
0: That's great advice, Dave. And if you want to read more on what dave has done you can look up systematic macro hedge funds trending into the new regime is that broadly available online we'll put a link to it in the yeah. description but if you search
2: that yeah up. yeah they sh- at least in mercer insight which should be open to anyone i believe I, mm-hmm. i'll probably need to double check that but i think anyone i don't i think it, it doesn't have to be an institutional asset manager to access that, but I would have to double check.
0: Okay, if there's a link, I'll put it. Yeah. I'll put it in the description, and yeah. and yeah, it was a
2: great paper,
0: accessible. Hopefully, gives enough of a background on these strategies to showcase the non-correlation and the benefits of, to traditional portfolios, and we can start moving the needle forward. All right, Dave, thank you so much for coming on for as long as you did. Um we look forward to hopefully future papers. I know they, that that is a bit more difficult than Mercer. You can't put out content every week, but hopefully nice. you'll continue to put out some thoughtful research in the future. And hopefully we can have you back on in a few months with as this whole global macro thing begins to explode.
2: Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, we're hoping to see more activity in the space and just, just a proponent. We'll hopefully have more data points in the future here to just reiterate that. And hopefully yeah, everything continues along the same path. So we'll have to see though. Yeah. Okay. Lots of moving yeah. parts in the world right now. Wow.
0: <laughs> is there, do you have a public profile? Can anybody find you on Twitter or on LinkedIn or
2: if anybody wants to reach out to you directly? But yeah. So I just have my LinkedIn, which is should just be my name, David Triplo. Okay. David Triplo
0: Mercer, look it up. Mm -hmm. reach out to Dave. And once again, Dave, thanks so much for coming today.
2: For sure. Thank you so much.
1: Today's podcast is brought to you by Horizon's Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation ETF, which trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol HRAA and is sub-advised by Resolve Asset Management. HRAA is an alternative fund whose investment objective is to seek long-term capital appreciation by investing directly or indirectly in major global asset classes, including, but not limited to, equity indices, fixed income indices, interest rates, commodities, and currencies. HRAA gains exposure to these asset classes by investing in derivative instruments that may include future contracts and forward agreements and securities. HRAA will take long or short positions using up to a maximum of three times leverage in asset classes, such as equity indices and fixed income asset classes. To learn more about this, please visit www.horizonsetfs.com HRAA to read about the ETF's investment objectives and important disclaimers about the risks associated with an investment in the ETF.
0: Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at Investors All. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next
1: This podcast is brought to you by the Resolve Long Horizon Investing Masterclass, a 10-part evergreen podcast series where Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global explore an advanced investment framework specifically designed to steward quasi-permanent capital with humility and balance. From the science of decision-making to all-weather portfolio construction to the value of diversified alpha and tail protection, this series provides a comprehensive capital management roadmap to improve outcomes for wealthy individuals, advisors, family offices, and institutions managing less than $10 billion. To listen to the series or read the transcripts on demand, please visit investresolve.com forward slash masterclass. Alternatively, you can find it on your favorite podcast player by searching for resolve dash masterclass.